Welcome to KikiTV.life and welcome to my expert event. And I'm so happy to be here today with Dr. Saifuddin Amus. Uh, Saifuddin is an economist and author focusing on Bitcoin. He authored the first academic book on the economics of Bitcoin, the Bitcoin Standard, which has been translated into 20 languages. I've only ever read one book on economics and that book was absolutely transformational for me. It, at a spiritual level, and uh, that is the Bitcoin Standard by Dr. Saifuddin, and I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Kiki. It's a pleasure. So, we're before we talk about Bitcoin, which is quite difficult to understand. Let's talk about like what is money what does it do we exchange our time for money so that we can live the life that we want what is money and why would we understand that our money now is not safe our time is not safe our future is not safe because of the current economic situation yeah so um i think you know to cut to the chase, uh, in my book, I focus on one uh, important characteristic of money, which is the hardness of the money. And um, in particular, that relates to how much new production can you produce of the money compared to the existing stockpiles? Or in other words, how much inflation can there be when we understand inflation as the increase in the supply? So um effectively i think that metric you know the percentage annual growth in the supply is arguably the most uh important long term metric in uh, in in uh, what happens to a money it's, it's in in the fate of a particular kind of uh, money so um if you <clears throat> if you look historically um and I, and I mentioned several examples in my book Whatever gets used as money at any particular point in time, at any particular place in time throughout history is whatever is the hardest to produce or whatever has the lowest supply growth rate. So uh, for most of uh, the history around the world, gold was uh, the money of choice because it is the one thing that is uh, whose supply is very hard to increase. Similarly, you look at, uh, you know, uh, we have examples of isolated little islands that don't have limestone in these islands, they import limestone from another from another island and because it's very hard to get new limestone, limestone is very rare and so it ends up being used as money. In other places, seashells uh, are used as money. In places that didn't have uh, glass production, uh, they used glass beads as money because it was very hard to secure glass beads. So whatever is the hardest thing to make ends up holding on to its value and ends up being used as money and that's both a because of a conscious decision based um, a conscious decision that humans make because they choose to take the um, uh, hardest money because they see that its supply can't be increased. But also, uh, more important than that, I argue, be, you know, this is a this is a dynamic that doesn't even need humans to be conscious of it for it to unfold. Because even if people were completely blind uh, to how they allocate their money and they were to allocate it completely randomly the forces of markets, the forces of supply and demand, and the forces of production will ensure that in the long run, only the hardest things will be used as money because all the easy things, the things for which you can increase the supply as their price begins to appreciate because people are using them as money, um, it becomes easy for their producers to make more and more of them and so dump a larger supply of them on the market, bring the price down, 
and reduce the the market value. So the only money that will store value in the long run will end up being the money that is the hardest to produce. And so we see that when in societies that have a money, uh, when a harder money is introduced, you know, the the easier money dies away, it stops being used as money, no matter what anybody says or wants, just because it doesn't hold on to its value. Well, you know, every year the supply increases, let's say by 10%, whereas another money has a supply increase by 5% every year. If you carry that forward for a few years, you know, the difference in magnitude of supply becomes enormous, even though it's a small percentage difference, but the magnitude difference eventually becomes enormous and that will be reflected in the price. So if you stored your money in the easy money, if you stored your wealth in the easy money, 10 years later, it's going to have been more or less devalued and you won't have any wealth left and all the wealth that's left is going to be the wealth that's stored by the people who um, used the harder money. So we see this even, you know, in prisons, uh, people use cigarettes as money because you can't make cigarettes in prison and they're very hard to get. We see it even with national currencies around the world. You see that, you know, the currencies that have the low predictable supply growth rate every year, like the US dollar and the euro and the uh, British pound, they hold on to their value relatively well compared to the currencies that have a very high uh, supply growth rate, like the Venezuelan Bolivar and the Mexican peso and all these uh, other currencies that continue to witness more and more inflation. It's, it's, it's simple supply and demand. And applying this to money, I think, is quite uh, instructive. So we have an idea. I have an idea that all of these paper bills or these digital money that I'm moving around to buy things in person or online, I have an idea that at Fort Knox, there's a piece of gold for every bit of money that I move around. And this is called, I believe, the gold standard. And when our money was, these paper money was created, it was like a paper IOU. I'm going to give you this 20 bucks. You're going to give me this thing. And you accept that this 20 bucks is linked to gold. And one day I could take all my money, get some gold and leave. But that doesn't exist anymore. So what we understand that gold the gold standard gold is hard it is limited or it's very expensive to produce so each bit of it it has a value um but now we're not all of our paper bills have nothing to do with gold or very little yeah so i think you know eventually gold ended up being the only money in the world by around the year 1900 even silver was practically demonetized by then or demonetizing by then um, and, and gold ended up winning because it is the hardest thing to produce. And I discuss why in detail and the chemistry of it um, in, in my book, the Bitcoin standard, but um, the, when it was being used as money, um, you know, the, the inconvenient thing about gold is that you have to move it around physically and that can be expensive. And so what ended up happening was that more and more of gold trading on gold exchanges were happening with, Uh, paper currency backed by gold or with financial instruments, digital effectively, uh, financial instruments that are, uh, you know, just entries on people's uh, paper ledgers. And uh, as long as, you know, in theory, as long as the physical quantity of gold is uh, equivalent in value to the um, value of the uh, papers that are circulating and all the financial assets that are gold substitute, that there's no problem with that. But the security failure in gold, you know, the, the bug, the, the software bug in gold as a money is that uh, once you put all the gold in somebody's vault and told them, you know, 
or I will just use pieces of paper, the difference in the production cost of the piece of paper or the ledger entry, or the digital ledger entry, or uh, and on the one hand versus the production cost of gold on the other hand are enormous. It costs a few cents to make a dollar bill. Um, it costs a thousand seven hundred to six hundred dollars to make um, an ounce of gold. Um, you know, to make a thousand six hundred dollars or a thousand seven hundred dollars in paper costs practically nothing compared to the price in gold. So. That mismatch has proven to be far, 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 far too tempting for governments and uh, banks over the last couple of centuries. And as a result, you know, this culminated in 1971 when the final link between gold and the dollar was severed. Central banks still keep gold because gold is still the only money that exists that is not anybody else's liability. So this is why, you know, central banks still hold gold because they don't want to just be holding their own paper and other central banks' papers. But there's no connection between the size of their money supply and the gold supply. So in 1971, there were rising costs in the United States. We're coming out of, or there's this war, this very expensive war in Vietnam. The prices of gasoline are going up. And President Nixon wanted things to be more affordable for the American people. And he said, well, let's just make more of these pieces of paper, get them into people's hand. It doesn't have to be backed by gold. Uh, we're just increasing uh, the ability for people to throw paper around and spend it. Is that what happened? Um, I mean, I, I don't think that was the motivation, um, ex the explicit motivation, but more or less that's, that is what happened. Uh, essentially, up until 1971, um, we didn't have as much gold as we had paper uh, in circulation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the only, but, but you couldn't just go and take your gold to the central bank and ask them, take your paper to the central bank and ask them for gold in return. The only people who could do that were central banks. So they were the only ones who could do it. So that gave the central banks a large margin of maneuver where, you know, uh, as long as they didn't, um, as long as they didn't inflate too much, you know, their citizens couldn't ask for redemption of the gold. So then in, the inflation wasn't exposed a lot uh, or, or the bankruptcy, the, the default didn't need to happen. But of course, the, you know, you can't cheat markets. Markets are just a reflection of underlying reality. And so when more and more dollars were being printed, and, and in fact, the motivation for the dollar printing in the 60s was largely, um, you know, it's, it's always the same dynamic in the U.S., uh, welfare and warfare. So you had the Vietnam War, and that needed financing because, you know, we had to fight uh, wars all over the world um, because that's just what... Uh, governments who have control of money, that's what they do. You know, the war is free for them. So they keep finding excuses for fighting more wars and then welfare at home. So, you know, uh, since we have a magic printing press that can satisfy all of our needs and things are costless, it's criminal not to give people free housing and not to give people free education and all of these, um, you know, uh, pink ponies for the little girls and all of that stuff. If, if you refuse that, then you clearly hate the children. And so well, that's certainly happening now. We're in this kind of quarantine. People's jobs, people can't access their jobs. They're, they can't run their businesses. We've been told we can't run our businesses. We can't get to work. 
there's no paychecks. So now the government has given everyone a paycheck to not work. And uh, the printing presses, the money printers are just creating all this money. So what does that look like? You talk about markets. So the market is gonna keep up with all this new paper and the prices of our basic and other goods are going to increase? Is that how the market responds? Generally, yes, but I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm careful about making these kind of generalizations about short-term periods because um, it gets a little bit more complicated when you look at how the banking system works. And currently, you know, uh, the, the majority of the money supply is not created by the government or the Federal Reserve. It's created by banks, by issuing loans. And so, yes, the central bank is printing all kinds of uh, enormous amounts of quantities of money and handing them over to bank. But we got to remember that on the other side, all of these banks are witnessing liquidations and bankruptcies and defaults. And uh, all of that stuff is causing the money supply to decline. So it doesn't necessarily follow that, you know, we've doubled the money supply in the last few months because... Um, you know, even with all of these trillions that are being handed out, there are other trillions collapsing uh, from the global uh, dollar supply because of the global recession. Um, but, you know, in, in the 50s and 60s, things were simpler because the, the um, financial system was far less sophisticated and it could create far less money. So it was, um, it, it was much more of a um, money creation was far more uh, in the hands of government and the central bank. And they, you know, prices began to rise in the 60s and 70s, but also price of gold began to rise. And so the U.S. government could no longer uh, redeem gold for other central banks at the price because if they did, they would run out of uh, their gold reserves. And so they decided that they would not redeem it. And this was offered initially as a temporary uh, measure. You know, the, the um, you know, President Nixon said, we are just suspending um, the redeemability because all of these evil speculators are out there uh, trying to, uh, you know, extort our uh, national economy by speculating on prices and so on. But, um, uh, you know, it, uh, it's been 49 years of this uh, temporary measure. And since that time, you know, at that time, an ounce of gold was worth $35. Today, it's worth about $1,700. So it's gone up about 50-fold in about 50 years, which is impressive. And at different times, governments have asked the citizens of their country to turn in their gold. I know that happened uh, with FDR, either leading up or during World War II. It happened in Germany. Yeah. People can only hold so much of this very hard, um, you know, currency that has a long lasting, that provides long lasting stability for them and their family that they invested in. Yeah, I think this, uh, this was really in the 1920s and 30s all over the world. And it, 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 it may have originated in England during World War I. Um, well, not just England, but in Europe during World War I, a lot of those uh, governments were confiscating gold and then forcing their population, not necessarily forcing, but, you know, it was wartime and they were leaning on their population that, you know, in order to support the war effort, stop using gold and start using paper. We need the gold for the war effort. And uh, th this was really when it started. And this was why World War I went on for so long, because for the first time, central banks 
uh, and governments and kings did not need to fight for as long as they had weapons and as long as they had money. They could continue to fight for as long as they could continue to print money. So initially, when money was gold, as a king, you had to collect money and taxes from your subjects in order to fight a war. And that's not easy and it's not uh, popular amongst your subjects. And if you do too much of it, then your population get uh, angry at you and uh, things go bad. Um, but when you force your population to use paper, then you can, don't have to knock on their doors and ask them for taxes. You just keep printing more of the paper and that devalues the paper that is in their hands. So you're able to rob them without having to go to their home. It's, it's, a, it's an incredibly convenient technology for uh, impoverishing and robbing the population to finance the government. And that's really the story of the last century. Thank you, Saifedean. So we are, I want to transition here to trying to understand what this, this, so, this Bitcoin, this blockchain, uh, crypto, a currency based on cryptography, what that is. And I just want to start with a segue that people are opposed to using like a digital money. We don't understand what that is, but I think we are using digital money, right? We're not moving the money from bank to bank every time I pay my credit card or um, so money isn't being, you know, flown around the United States to cover our purchases. We're really just moving uh, data from these digital ledgers that our private banks um, are holding. So we, we're moving to digital currency, we're moving to a cashless, there's a strong push for a cashless society. Um, so now we don't even have those IOUs and pieces and banknotes to understand where our money is, how we can get to it and um, what its value is. So can you talk about how we are, where we are now in this sort of digital debting currency? And then please tell us what Bitcoin is and how Bitcoin solves this and solves, potentially solves war and puts these limits on government and brings sort of uh, individual yeah. So in a nutshell, uh, you know, what I was saying about the hardness of money, the, the, the a fascinating thing about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is the hardest money ever invented. Um, it's it, right now it's at the same kind of level of hardness as gold. It's hard to tell which one is harder right now. They both grow at an annual rate of around 1.5 to 2%. Um, with gold, it varies between 1.5 and 2. With Bitcoin, it's going to be around 1.8 or so per year. So it's not entirely clear which one is lower, but it is entirely clear that in four years' time, Bitcoin is going to be uh, growing at a 1% supply rate, supply growth rate, and the details of why can be seen in my book about explaining how the money supply growth. But currently it's at about 2%. Yep, there it is, the Bitcoin standard. Currently it's at about 2% and it'll be at around 1%. So it'll be growing at a lower growth rate than gold within a year or so, uh, within uh, three years or so, four. Um, so, and then the growth rate is just going to continue to decline. Eventually Bitcoin taps out at around 21 million Bitcoins. That's the only, not, that's the only amount of uh, Bitcoin that will ever exist. There'll never be more Bitcoins than that. So, but like gold, Bitcoin is fungible. We don't have to have a whole Bitcoin. We can take off, we can use small pieces of exactly. Bitcoin to yeah. 
transact. Yeah, the way that Bitcoin grows is not that we make more Bitcoins to hand out to people. The way is that the value of Bitcoin goes up and people buy smaller and smaller pieces of it. So right now, one Bitcoin is worth $10,000 roughly or $9,000. 10 years ago, 1,000 Bitcoins were worth a dollar. So this is, you know, this is how the network goes from a network of five people to a network of tens of millions of people around the world. It's just um, they each get a smaller and smaller share and the value goes up. So the fact that Bitcoin is out there, the fact that it can function, and for a various number of security reasons, which we don't really have time to get into, um, and you can read about it in my book, Bitcoin is pretty secure. And it, it makes sense to start considering the possibility that it will not go away tomorrow and that it might be sticking around for another few years because it has been operating flawlessly for 10 years. 11 so maybe you know maybe there's another 11 maybe there's another 100 in it and if that is the case if it continues to operate this way i think the implications are enormous because it's available for everybody anywhere in the world to access it and so everybody has access to the hardest money ever invented everybody can store their wealth in a money whose supply cannot be inflated and this is it's not just the hardest money ever it's also the only strictly scarce money ever which is Amazing, because the only other thing that is truly strictly scarce is human time. The only thing that is completely fixed in its quantity in the world, as far as we're concerned, in our world, is our time. Because everything else we can make more of. You know, So oil, gold, silver, whatever it is, we've been digging for those things for hundreds and thousands of years. And every year we find more than we found the previous year because the earth is enormous and you know, we've barely scratched the surface of the earth. The size of the earth is about... Um, the diameter of the earth is about 12,000 kilometers and the biggest hole that anybody has dug anywhere is about three kilometers deep. So um, we've barely scratched the surface of the earth. The limit on how much of any resource exists in earth is not how much, uh, the limit of how much we can have of any resource is not how much of it exists in earth. It's how much time we dedicate to it um, as opposed to other uses. So we could have more of everything if we wanted to, but the cost is, and the limit is not that it's not there in uh, Earth. The limit is how much time we have to dedicate to it and therefore how much of other stuff we have to sacrifice. So we could produce so much more gold if we gave up on making cars and homes and um, all other things that we give up on, that we value. If we gave up on that and cared only about mining gold, we could make more gold. So the scarcity of everything else is relative, but the scarcity of Bitcoin is absolute. It's like human time. You can't make human more human time, and you can't make more, um, and and you can't make more Bitcoin. So for me, this is just a match made in heaven. That you store the value. You know, your time is is, is scarce. So when you work for let's say a day and you make a hundred dollars, if you put them in the dollar in the U.S. dollar next year, there's going to be more dollars, and the year after there will be more dollar. In the long run, that hundred bucks is going to be worth much less than it was worth. Uh, when you first earned it. So effectively, the the value of your work is eroding because the supply of the thing in which you stored it is increasing. It's like you stored the value in a, in, in a, in a bucket that is leaking. Bitcoin is a bucket that has no leak. You know, there will never be more Bitcoins made than what is uh, already uh, predetermined. And additionally, you've been talking about central banks and who's printing the money and loaning the money and going bankrupt. But Bitcoin is decentralized. There's no bank. There's no government. The government's trying to stand between, uh, get in there somehow. But Bitcoin is decentralized. And the 
the knowledge of where all the Bitcoin is, is in these multiple digital ledgers spread across um, uh, whoever wants to join that community and participate in that. And that's the blockchain, that there's all these ledgers that are tightly latched. No one can get in there and change the numbers on the ledgers. Um, and this is decentralized and overseen by, I don't know how many people are. Uh, yeah, I think the, the key thing is that nobody controls it. So anybody can use it and they can use it reliably because um, it's, you know, it's uh, trying to change Bitcoin, to try and change the supply and try and change the rules so that your coins don't work or to try and confiscate your coins is practically impossible. It's, uh, we've got tens of thousands of Bitcoin users around the world running their full nodes and each one of them needs to agree to any kind of uh, change that happens in order for this change to take place in the, uh, in, in the Bitcoin protocol. So it's, it's, it's enormously secure in, in that regard. Um, and more, more details are discussed about just how secure in this regard it is in my book. Well, I'm going to share all the information for your book and for your website and how people can even study with you. You've started your own um, institute, and I'll share all of that uh, below this podcast. So for the newcomer, and uh, I want to, someone wants to invest in Bitcoin or hold Bitcoin or have this amazing currency, mm -hmm. uh, where should, where do we start? What do we look at? Um, I think the, the, the uh, most important thing is to um, uh, really understand what it is that you're doing and understand the uh, basics of um, the ownership. I think the most, uh, the, the most critical thing to know is the ownership of Bitcoin and how to secure the ownership of Bitcoin because a lot of people um, can make a lot of mistakes and bitcoin is you know bitcoin is is for real it's uh, it, it doesn't do do overs there's no customer service support i think it's 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 a mental shift to make from going in a world in which everything that you're using that is digital is just you know on a computer and it's um, you know it can be sent and it can be received and computer security for most people is something that is just an abstract problem where you essentially delegated to uh, others with Bitcoin, you know, there's, the, the, there are no do overs. There's no customer service support. Um, you have to think about it as if you're handling physical gold coins on the internet. And so if you have a physical gold coin and you drop it somewhere, there's no gold central bank. You can call and tell them, please replace my coin. That coin is gone. If somebody takes it from you, it's gone. And the same thing you need to think about, um, you need to think in the same way about Bitcoin physical, sorry, Bitcoin's private keys. Um, and that's like a password that you need in order to access your coins. So I'd urge understanding what are the physical, um, what are the private keys? This is the most important aspect of it. And then looking into storage and how you're able to store Bitcoin in a safe and secure way. Um, so this is, this is, I think, the first step. And I'd urge, you know, um, start with something small to figure out how the how it works. Um, to try out different storage arrangements and figure out how that works, and see what works best for you given your security needs and your security profile. And then 
uh, you know, the next step is to try and run your uh, own node so that you're part of the network and you can verify your own transaction. Is that way you would not be reliant on anybody um, uh, for using your Bitcoin. We've given a lot of our trust, just an assumed trust to our bank, to our government for our money, that our money's safe, that it's holding its value, that we can get it when we want. And um, we understand that that's just not the case now. We understand money's being printed, our money's losing value. The time that I'm putting into my money, the value I think it has, it will be worth much less. Um, that's a given now. So to start with Bitcoin, it's really a personal responsibility and an investment and a stake in looking after my own coins, my own wealth, my own future safety and uh, security of myself and my family and how I participate. Great, thank you so much. Any final words, Saifedean, and then we'll see if we have any questions here. Um, I'd say, uh, I think the, um, what could I say? Yeah, one, well, one, fine, one word of advice. I think this, is, this can confuse a lot of people. If you're, if you're new into Bitcoin, you're going to be told about all kinds of different currencies. And you're going to be sold the story that Bitcoin has already gone up. And now the important thing is to go and uh, look for the next Bitcoin and look for the next digital currency that's going to appreciate. And I think, you know, if, um, if I could give one uh, piece of advice, is to be extremely skeptical of any of these things. If you want my opinion, um, you know, and I've, uh, I've basically made my name in the Bitcoin space by um, being uh, somebody who said this at a time when it was extremely, extremely unpopular. But over time, I have to say that I think it's, you know, a lot of people have um, changed their mind and come to agree with me. In the digital currency space, there's only Bitcoin that is uh, worth looking at. Everything else is at best, at best, a high school experiment, um, but more realistically, it's basically a scam. Um, and I think you know, the key point is that the only reason that any Bitcoin is worth anything or any of these currencies is worth anything is the fact of its scarcity. If you know, this is digital stuff, so you need a few lines of code in order to change the supply of any of these coins and you can add a trillion new coins uh, with a few lines of code in, 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 in any, anything that's digital, you know, there's no physical cost toward the creation of it. Um, if you can change the code, the only currency for which that is not true is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the only one, as we mentioned, it's the only one that nobody controls. It's the only one that nobody can mess with. That makes it a neutral protocol that nobody can control. And therefore, if you, put your money into it, you're putting your money into something that you know cannot be devalued. But with all the other coins, and I think um, you, know, you can see more of a discussion of this in detail in my book, there are very clear reasons why it's, it's patently clear that none of, these, uh, none of these coins can be claimed to be like Bitcoin in terms of it being um, not uh, changeable. There is a small group of people that have controlled this coin and they can change it. And, um, the details of how this happens um, are, are a little bit complicated, but ultimately, if there's a group of people that can sit in a room and change what goes on with your coin, then you know there's, there's no value proposition there. Um, it, it, it could um, it, it could fall apart in 15 minutes, and this is why you know people talk about different digital currencies, but in reality, there's only Bitcoin. Um, the others exist in exchanges, and they're being bought and sold here and there, and they can. 
uh, generate some kind of uh, fake volume by buying and selling. But in terms of actual real liquidity and people holding cash balances and being able to spend, um, the, the gap between Bitcoin and the rest is enormous. Uh, so I, I strongly urge you not to waste any time on that. Thank you so much, Safe. I'm going to take um, questions for you on audio only. So um, if someone has a question, just unmute your audio. Thank you. I, I have questions. Um, uh, I've, I've heard many people in the U.S. Um, speak about how printing more and more money and increasing the money supply can go on indefinitely so long as the U.S. dollar maintains its global position and thereby prop, continue to prop up the economy indefinitely as well. And um, um, what, what's your feeling about that? I think it's, uh, it's, um, it, it, it's uh, I disagree. And I think the only reason people think this is the case is because um, the U.S. dollar is growing on an international scale because it's much better than all the other national currencies, which are, um, you know, they inflate at a faster rate. So, you know, Venezuelans and people in Lebanon and in Zimbabwe and in Turkey and in Argentina, they're constantly demanding more and more dollars every day because they're watching their local uh, national currencies get devalued. And, uh, you know, they, they try and store their wealth in the, in the dollar. So there will continue to be more and more. And of course, more importantly, perhaps, it's a, the fact is that the dollar is the international currency of trade. So even if you wanted to hold on to your national currency, uh, you can't use it for international trade. So you need to hold more and more dollars. And as international trade becomes more and more important, people need to hold more balances in dollars. So there's this, um, the, 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 there's this uh, runway, effectively, of, uh, of value that can accrue to the dollar. But this obviously can't last forever. And, uh, you know, once, um, once that trend reverses, it, and, and it has to reverse because, you know, if it continues, it'll eventually get to 100% where the dollar is the only national currency that's anywhere in the world. And at that point, it won't be able to continue anymore, right? Because then nobody else is going to uh, want to buy new dollars. So then at that point, you know, there's, um, th there, is a, there is a problem uh, with this. More generally, I think you know the reason the dollar gets away with this is because uh, we have economic growth that is probably causing a reduction in prices every year because you know economic growth means we have more of everything. So every year we should be having three, four, maybe five percent reduction in prices of most goods and services, but we don't see that because the money supply is continuously expanding. Mm -hmm. But I think um, the uh, you know th this is not sustainable because the, the, the implication for the U.S. economy is that people don't really work or don't really need to work anymore. They just need to be connected to the central bank in one way or the other. They need to get low interest rate loans. Effectively, you know, if you can just get low interest rate credit, you can roll it over and that generates income. And so very few people are a uh, very few people. Well, not very few, but more and more people are um, not needing to work actual jobs because of this. And I think that the implication for the U.S. economy is negative in the long run because, you know, people are not getting trained and not getting useful skills. And the, um, you know, the, the, the U.S. Is, um, it, it would effectively be falling behind um, economically in, in real terms. You know, it's, um, it's, it, it's nice if you can just print pieces of paper and export them. That sounds nice. But, you know, 
if you think about it on an individual level, if you did that yourself, eventually, you know, one of your children is going to um, not be able to continue to do that. And then they're going to face a very hard uh, landing when they not only run out of uh, printing money, but also need to learn uh, useful skills to start being productive for others in order to make actual money. So, um, you know, I think you, you can't separate this from the um, from the, the the many societal problems that you see in the U.S., I don't think you can separate them from the fact that so many people don't need to work. And I don't mean that in the perspective of um, just uh, you know the traditional way of looking at it. Oh, well, it's uh, you know poor people who are living off of welfare. I think that's an almost insignificant part of the problem. I think the uh, the real welfare problem is the corporate welfare and the um, you know the welfare for the rich. That means that. Basically, if you have a lot of money, you know, the central bank will always buy your stocks and always buy your bonds and always make sure that those things are expensive and the price is high. And that comes at the expense of everybody else in the U.S. and in the world. So, um, you know, we can, we can use government money in order to manipulate government statistics to look nice and impressive. But it's, it, it becomes more and more absurd when you look at the actual real world or you look at you know, how Americans actually live, what Americans actually eat. You look at the state of American cities where, um, you know, security is very low. Um, crime is quite common. Uh, rioting, as we see right now, you know, these are not the hallmarks of a wealthy society. And more and more, I think people are beginning to realize that, you know, having more impressive numbers every year in all of these aggregate metrics is not the be all end all of human existence. So, you know, what good is the world's biggest GDP when you can't walk in the street of any major American city because you're worried about uh, security? Uh, so I think these, the, the connection between the, the economic distortion of easy money and the economic problems and the social problems in the US and elsewhere, I think is something that. Uh, the, the, that that is the uh, direct refutation of this claim that this thing can go on, um, but I think in the long run we'll, we're going to see even more uh, devastating consequences that refute even more. But don't expect the kind of people who care about the short run to care about the long run. Thank you so much, Dr. Amus. I'm going to wrap it up here. I want to be respectful of your time, and um, thank you for joining me here today. And you can learn more about uh, Dr. Sefadin Amus at sefadin.com. I'll put the information below this and how to buy his book and read his book, also to join his institute and have an extraordinary uh, life-changing education. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Kiki. Have a good day. Thank you.